We're live. Oh. <laughs> Whatever. I don't care whether we're live or not live, Tom Heineber, because this is the morning show with Tom and Z. Why do we call it that? Because we're live. We have nothing in particular that we're talking about, and we've mm-hmm. taken comments, and we don't give an F. That's right. Yeah. If you're one of the people who's like, hey, what's the topic of this show? You should leave right now. Just leave. There's no topic. If you're one of those people who is easily offended, just go away That's the, and yeah. never come. You know, I banned someone from the page the other day because... Um, you had we had posted uh, Tom and Z or no Tom, Z debates an anti-vaxxer and it was you dressed in <laughs> a blonde wig. Like, oh my god, yeah, you know, Chancho, my dog has got a lazy eye because of the vaccines. And uh, he wrote, um, first of all, a cis male dressed in a wig is never okay." And I'm like, "Ban! <laughs> you have no business here. Like, if you're gonna leave a comment like that, it means you don't understand anything about what we're about." You know, this is important. I have taken to, you know, you know, a few years ago, like all smart thinking people were like, you know, you shouldn't be in your echo chamber. Like Barack Obama was out there, like, you know, echo chambers are a real problem in our society. Blah blah blah. I'm uh, trying to curate my echo chamber, so I just ban liberally now. Yeah. If you say one wrong thing I disagree with, I'm like, ban. <laughs> it doesn't matter if I know you in real life or not. I'm ban. Uh, but, you know, I keep a few around just for variety, uh-huh. you know, like Wade, the anti-vaxxer, who sends me these crazy private messages, too. You going to answer me now, Z-Dog? <laughs> you going to an- I just put a rabbit head, a boiled rabbit in, in, in someone's bed. It wasn't yours, but I get you get you get the message, right? <laughs> You're like, wow, these guys are really, I mean, the conspiracy guys are crazy. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's literally true. They have mental illness. I was listening to this podcast. Uh, I think it was on the Rogan show. And, and one of the guys was like, yeah, man, you know, we're like too dumb to know what the scientists are talking about. And the other guy's like, yeah. And he's like, what if they're just lying to us? And he's like, ah, oh, now you sound like one of those guys. <laughs> and that's basically how it starts, right? Like, it always begins like you're that. You're like, hey, okay, I know I'm dumb, right? Mm-hmm. But what if uh, what if what they're telling me is going on is not really going on? You know what I'm saying? It's, like, eh, it's a little Dunning-Kruger. A little, I, I'm just... I know just enough to be dangerous. Exactly. That's what it is. The one I can't abide is the people who don't think the earth is is round. They're like, like we have pictures of the earth. You it, know? You know, I love it because the, the Chinese kicked some ass recently, land a probe on the mm-hmm. backside of the moon. I won't call it the dark side because, in fact, it has light, Tom Heinberg. That's true. It's the backside of the moon. The backside. Because the front side faces us because we're earth-centric, because we're culturally inappropriate to moon people. <laughs> and so you la- they land that shit on the backside of the moon— and the, the flat earthers are like, yeah, nice act, you know, comrade. It's like, hello? <laughs> like, what, what? Really? Yeah. I mean, actually, if anyone's going to fake a moon landing, it's going to be the Chinese. They're going to pirate it. You know? I have a friend who believes in conspiracy theories, and he one time told me that um, he wanted to go to China to see a different side of the moon. And I was like, the moon's in asynchronous orbit. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the same moon to everybody, bro. It's the same face of the moon that you see every time. Uh, Donald, and that's, that's the level of thought that goes into it's these, really quite these conspiracy It's theories. really quite amazing. So our supporters who pay the four ninety nine a month, they get priority in the comments. Uh, Donald Kunzer is one of them. He asks us five dumbest people of the week. Go. Mm, of the week? Of the week. I'm going to say... Me? Trump? Yo, for that for that fast food breakfast because he's always he's always up there, <laughs> eternal contender. Give me some actresses, actors. Then I'm gonna say Alexandra Ocasio Cortez. She is not. Well, I guess she is because kind of she's the opposite of Trump, but just as dumb. <laughs> uh, what else? I haven't been paying attention to yeah, anything. Me neither. Week. You I know don't. why? Because I have a newborn at home. Oh. Okay. I'm on this podcast right now. Look, there's a huge wine stain on my shirt. Huge. I don't even care. I've lost all ability to care about my appearance. What's shocking to me is that you're drinking wine. It means you really have become a dad because Uh you used to be exclusively beer. That's true. Yeah. That's true. But I decided that wine was classy. You you took one of these like... Because in the ad in the ad stream for Facebook, right, you got this like James Suckling teaches master class on wine. Yeah, exactly. And now you're like swirling and spitting and you know. Well, guess what? A lot of you don't don't know, but Z is actually one of these uh swarmy wine types. How dare you? So in order to keep up with them, I had to be like, you know, yeah, Z, the tannin structure on this varietal, it's not quite up to snuff. Oh, your lingo is so good, Tom. I gotta <laughs> Both my nipples got erect when you said that because I was like, "What wow, tannin structure on this varietal? Very good." You know what's funny is like, I was always a terrible student because I just wanted to learn just enough to bullshit my way through whatever it was, right? So that's what I did with this wine class. I watched like thirty minutes of it, and now I know just enough to bullshit my way through 
almost any wine conversation it's I a, have with somebody. You have a Dunning Kruger effect for wine. Like you're gonna go, <laughs> you're gonna go open a winery now, thinking you know everything, and it's gonna. And weirdly, you'll get lucky. Like mm-hmm. there'll be some strain of yeast that's fermenting the wine that just happens to have flown in on a booger that you accidentally flicked <laughs> into the thing, and it's the best. Like James Suckling is like, this is a 100 point wine. We've never given this high of a score. It's just really tremendous. <laughs> Because you're you're the, the luckiest man I've ever, and yet the unluckiest man I've ever known. Newborn though, you're, are you sleeping? No, mm. no. It's obviously it's worse for my wife though. You mm. know what I mean? We had we had an amazing trip. My my daughter is uh, eight weeks old, and so we had an amazing. She slept for seven hours last night. Oh, which that. was like when you woke up, it was like, oh. like was, and then you were like. Just before the show, you guys, we were talking about like the different Star Wars episodes and the pros and cons of, and episode one, The Phantom Penis, mm-hmm. was really all about Duel of the Fates and the fight That's true. with Darth Maul at the end, who made a cameo in Han Solo. I think that we all owe George Lucas a collective apology because we were too hard on the prequels because the new Star Wars all suck. They oh, all I suck. I'm, I don't know. Tom they suck. Whatever. I, I like mm-hmm. some of the new ones. I actually like Return of the Jedi or whatever the fuck it was called. What was it called? Return of the... The S- Last Jedi. The Last Jedi. <laughs> I don't know. I like that one too, except for the part where... Uh, Carrie Fisher, Mary Poppins, her way through space. That I wasn't was so down with that Not part. acceptable. Yeah. First of all, space doesn't work like that. Why are we all grown men who talk about Star Wars all day long? Did you think that this was the reality we were all headed for? Yes. I thought we were going to all sit around and talk about, you know, land and capital and <laughs> property. No. no, because since I was a child, I knew the first, I was, it was 1977. I was four years old and I was taken to see Star Wars in the theater on the East Coast by my dad. And at four, I still have vivid memories of that just transforming my life like mm-hmm. watching luke skywalker fly down that trench and the in the music and you're just like he's like oh stay on target i can't hold it stay on target you're all clear kid blow this thing and just shitting my pants as a see i was i was actually lucky because i i straddled the divide between the two worlds because 90s kids like like me uh, got to watch a re-release of all the originals in theaters. So the first time I ever saw them was in theaters with some wonky CGI that was added. But I that. they were mainly the originals. And then uh, the A Phantom Menace came out, and I got to see that in theaters. So I'm actually you're pretty lucky. I like the prequels. You're pretty lucky. I don't I don't hate them like everybody else. Okay, I'm not a snob like some. Not of a you. prequel snob. Yeah. Well, judging by crazy statements you've made, such as <laughs> you know living. With a live John Williams in the world is kind of like living in Beethoven's time. It's that amazing. And that's I was like, that's I, I true. I don't know that that's true, having studied music. It's deeply true. I bet you could hum 10 songs by John Williams off the top of your head right now. You can't hum a single one by Beethoven. Um, bum, 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 bum. Mm-hmm. I can also do the third symphony, which is dun, dun. It goes minor. Okay, fine. I studied Beethoven in college. Kill me. All right. I took a class, Beethoven like 307. Let me ask you this Berkeley. For somebody who studied all this music, why you suck at it? You know, that's a thousand dollar question that I think other so-called co-hosts would never ask me out of respect. You don't have that restraining bolt, right, R2? You're just ready to go off into the desert with the sand people. Crazy old Ben Kenobi, doesn't matter. You know what's funny is, you know, Z mildly, you know, no, actually it's 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 pretty explicit. Z pays me basically to just trash talk him all day long, uh-huh. like behind the scenes. It's like uh, a sadomasochist hiring someone to gag ball me and just beat me. I have a safe word. It's shut the fuck up. <laughs> Tom Iver. <laughs> Zeal come in and be like, you know, I think we should do a parody of the Backstreet Boys, Tom. And uh, to, uh, I want it that way. And I'll be like, no, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard, Z. We're not doing that. That's terrible. And, uh, Wait, what was the Backstreet Boys song you wanted it, to No, it was, it was, um... Tell me why. No, 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 right? no, no. it was like, Looking oh, yeah. back on the codes I've run, <laughs> I was trying to save someone. Play my part, shocked you in your heart. <laughs> listen, listen to these people. They're saying yes, Lauren Day Kent agrees. Either she agrees with you or me. I can't tell. The Backstreet Boys are dope, though. They are dope. I will just And they're say coming that. back. It's time. Yeah. 
It's you know, fun. you know, you know, when you're like six or seven, and like your musical tastes are are at their peak, uh, it, like the 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 most embarrassing they're ever going to be, ever going to be, and you like love pop yep. music. Yep. Well, when I was six or seven, the Backstreet Boys were super popular, oh. and I had a Backstreet Boys CD. My goodness, I would listen to it. I I had two CDs. <laughs> it was the first Backstreet Boys CD, and Thriller, and I would listen to these two CDs back to back. <laughs> You know, strangely, they're compatible. They're one and the same, really. They're just any antimers of each other. My kid, speaking of that, the seven-year-old loves Owl City's Fireflies. Uh-huh. That is the equivalent drivelly pop, you know. And they probably listen to it on repeat, right? Ten million fireflies. I'm sad because I hate goodbyes. <laughs> that song's ten years old now, too. So I, can that's you not even that? current, yeah. You know, I used to make myself believe that planet Earth spins slowly. Uh, let's take some comments here. Um, people are saying exactly Tom, Natalie MacArthur, who is a valued commenter, but not a supporter because she's cheap. Um, whereas supporter, Alyssa Keebler, says Thriller. Who am I going to choose? The supporter, because she's paying me. Thriller is amazing, by the way. Okay, it is amazing. Can we tell the people that we have always wanted to do yes. a thriller parody about sundowners? Yes. And it's like, it's after midnight. Something strange is happening on the wards. You start to scream, but Haldol takes the sound before she makes it. And, and we basically like have a bunch of old ladies dressed up like zombies. And yep. they're like slowly coming for the <laughs> nurses. dun dun Okay, my wife, who's a nurse, Wants us to do our Sundowner song, um, which this country song is like, when the sun goes down, they'll be singing. You know, have you heard that song? You sent it to me. I'd never heard it. Yeah. Yeah. She wants us to do that one. A I country was, song. I was like, I can see it. Yeah. I can I see mean, it. I mean, I've been wanting to do a country song for a long time, right? Again, mm -hmm. like uh, in addition to low platelets. Uh, what was the one we were going to do? Uh, uh, he, he, well, he's not prejudiced. He's, he's just, just addicted to, to opioids. <laughs> That's Toby Toby Keith. Toby right? Keith. Yeah. Toby Keith. Yeah. See, I go deep in country like I'm just a common man. I drive a common van. My doggy's got a pedigree. I don't even know who that was, mm -hmm. but it was dope when I was a kid. And in mm -hmm. fact, you know how I know these songs? Because you may have grown up with this too in the nineties, Tom Heinerber, but those commercials for compilation albums. Oh yeah. The greatest country hits. Ever. Starring Merle Haggard. Yeah, Merle Haggard. And then it would just be a scroll, yeah. right? So it'd be uh -huh. like Merle Haggard. And then you say like, and then, you know, Billy D. Bob. I'm just a common man. And so I actually remembered all the songs in the sequence. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. We actually did a parody. I miss when everybody in country was ugly. This is the problem with country, <sighs> modern Johnny country. Cash. Everybody's too pretty. They're too pretty. You look They're at like, like pop the, stars. the dudes from Florida, Georgia Line. Mm -hmm. They're like model dude. They yeah. could be Abercrombie models. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. Or yeah. like Luke Bryan. That's why I like Jason Aldean, because he's holding it down for the uggos. You he's know got a dad bod, mm -hmm. <laughs> just like Chris Pratt. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 and who's a, a Rascal Flats? Rascal Flats, they're ugly, yeah. They're ugly. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're good musicians. But they have good musicians. They have the pop sensibility. That's true. Right? What was That's their, oh, yeah. I'm going my way. Life is a That's right. way. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to ride it all night long. <laughs> Uh, they shit on me all the time, says Jessica Beliski. What the fudge? I'm trying not to be so hard on myself. Who are we talking about, Jessica? Hmm. Are we? We're, you know, we didn't crap on you, did we? Never. I hope not. We would never do that. I would never crap on someone named Jessica because it would remind me of Jessica Rabbit from Roger Rabbit, <laughs> which was my formative movie as a child. Oh my God, they mixed animation and live action. Who uh -huh. does that? Uh, Fantasia did that in 1929. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> all right, I guess... Forget it. Next. See, I'm all about Fantasia 2000. Oh, that was so whack, dude. Mm -hmm. That was whack. Mm -hmm. But I guess it's a generational thing, Playboy. <laughs> Speaking of which, you said, oh, you came up in the 90s when they re-released the Star Wars. Yeah. I remember because I was at Berkeley as an undergraduate, and it came out my freshman year. So me and my whole house were all Star Wars fans because we're Gen Xers. We go dressed in Star Wars sheets because my buddy had Star Wars <laughs> sheets on his bed. My housemate. All right. This guy, Jonathan Leff. I just named him. That's right. I just named him. 
<laughs> I just Star Wars shamed my buddy who I haven't seen in like 30 years and because we grew apart because, you know, a lot of shit went down in college. Anyway, so what ended up happening was we dress up in these sheets and we think, oh, everyone's going to do this because this is a college thing. And they were playing it on campus in the movie theater on campus, the new digitized versions. And there was a palpable excitement for, oh, what? Lucas is still this transcendent genius. Mm -hmm. Whatever he does to these movies is going to make them 100% better. And we go there in these sheets. First of all, no one else is dressed up. And this is Berkeley, like home of the nerds. It's like all a bunch of Asian kids going, uh, Star Wars for like three bucks. I'll go see that. And we're like, no, Star Wars, man, like transcendent. We're looked at like we're crazy. We sit down, we watch the movie, and we're like, dude, they just destroyed these movies. <laughs> what did Lucas do? You know, at least he cleaned up the little green bars that used to be around the TIE fighters. You could see that artifact in the theater. He cleaned that up digitally, but then he put in a weird cachectic Jabba with anorexia. You're like, why is anorexic Jabba <laughs> near the Millennium Falcon? And why is he talking to Han? And why is none of this relevant to the plot? I don't know, dude. Call me old, because I am. You're old. Look at these white hairs, dude. You tell me. You tell me who's old. Me. Uh, Listen, man. Listen, listen, bro. The 90s were a weird time, okay? I remember standing inside in a line outside of Hastings. Do you remember what Hastings was? No. What's yeah, because you didn't grow up in the middle of the country like oh, I did. Oh, dear. Hastings was like a Borders, Barnes & Noble type uh, thing. Oh. And they had the Titanic dual cassette box set at midnight. And people lined up at midnight to buy the Titanic box set. Do you that that. I vaguely remember that being an event. It was a thing. Dude. Yeah. So you could listen to Celine and uh, uh -huh. and you could you could reminisce halfway about through halfway through Titanic, you had to switch cassettes. Oh. That's how long Titanic was. You know, I was just uh one of my favorite authors is a Japanese guy, Haruki Murakami, because yes, I'm a hipster bitch. And um I was listening to his latest book called Killing Commendatore on audiobook. Normally I read his books, but this is the first time I've listened on audio. And um he has this whole rant in the book about how music that was designed for that kind of consumption. So in other words, designed for where you have to flip the record in the middle, like Rubber Soul, Pink Floyd's The Wall, these kind of things. Consuming them on CD where it's one run-on sentence, or worse yet on like iTunes where you're just listening to songs in isolation, mm -hmm. is a crime. It's not how the music was supposed to be consumed. The experience is you put this record on or you put a cassette in your deck and then you have to flip the cassette or push mm -hmm. the little A, B button. And there's a pause and a break and an intermission. And that's how the music was designed. That's how it was sort of conceived. So now we consume it in this very like, you know, it's yeah. kind of like medicine is the same way. We used to have this like very analog heart to medicine and now it's just a digital stream of bullshit. Well, this is uh, Marshall McLuhan's The Medium is the Message, right? Mm. Like the way that... Um, the thing is put out and digested, it kind of shapes how, you know, it, it's interesting because like what we're doing right now, podcast, this is basically, you know, it, Jordan Peterson has a thing where he says, this is democratized, like the spoken word. It's like what the printing press did for the written word that it take, it took this long to get to democratizing the spoken word, but now people can just go and speak and it's really easy to put out these, these podcasts, but they do have a very specific, um, there's a specific style that mm. you have to, Consume it. Consume it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you consume it like on a, on a on a bus or on a treadmill or you know in a state of mind that isn't. That's why I think I think I've struggled a little bit with this medium on Facebook because you don't typically consume this medium on Facebook as a live video. No, right. That's it's a different thing. It's a different thing. There it's a hybrid between two things. That's basically. right. I mean, there's yeah. 246 people who are consuming it now live. Now and they're leaving comments and many of them are supporters. And um, they're all arguing about you know whether I should have a beard or not, whether beards are cool. No, no it's, yeah. it looks terrible. Honestly. It does look terrible. <laughs> we, but we need it for this video that we're shooting this weekend. And then I'm going to shave the... Actually, I'm going to do a poll. I decided I'm going to do, do a, a poll, full poll yeah. on Facebook and let the fans control my destiny. <laughs> so if they're like, no, and if they're just trying to hurt me, they're like, you just keep it. You The beard's amazing. They're like, wink, wink, wink. And then I'm like, shit, like 80% of them want me to keep the beard. Then I have to keep the beard. My wife will divorce me. All kinds of shit will happen. So if you want to fuck with me, it's a great way to do it. Um, Nick Kersey says, how's it going, Z? It's going, Nick. You know, just to prove that we're reading comments. Uh, Jessica Beliski, hybrid indica and sal uh, sal saliva. I, I think, Jessica, you don't know what those words mean. So uh, indica, yes, is a strain of uh, cannabis. Sativa might be the autocorrect that you're looking for for the other strain. But I like it. I like it. 
Do you, uh, do you think there's a difference between this, like, you know, the difference between indica and sativa? Yeah, it's very noticeable. It's, it's like white wine Jim, and red wine. And I'm, and I'm over here like, white wine and red wine is like the same thing. <laughs> they both get you drunk, right? So there was a classic... Do you feel different when you drink different types of alcohols? Because I don't. I feel drunk all the time. Uh, there's I a different physiological thing that happens. Think about it. It's, a, it, it's uptake rate and the other compounds that you're consuming. Like if you drink beer, you feel a little more bloated and stuff. Yeah. But like, that's... it's. It's the glutens. It's the gluten. Uh, yeah, no, they did a classic, this was a finding, I forget when they did this test, but they took a world-class enophile, you know, which is somebody who knows wine, mm -hmm. apparently, O-E-N, because it's like British, and like oesophagus, and they, they, they blind, t made him blind taste, so they put blindfolds on, they didn't tell him what they were doing, and they gave him like white wine and red wine. They couldn't fucking tell the difference between the white and the red. And it's like, okay, so there's clearly other components in the experience of wine. See, to me, to me, this strikes at the heart of what is a subjective experience. Wine, wine is a subjective experience, which is why if you go in not knowing anything about it and you're just guzzling it, your experience is gonna be very different than if you have trained yourself a little and you go in with certain pretensions. Like you're like, okay, this was this varietal from this particular terroir where the gravel actually got into the grape skins. And this was a difficult vintage where there were a lot, you know, the, the immigrant labor that they paid for was particularly, you let know, me, tuberculous. Let me ask you this. I, I have a hard time having hobbies because they all feel just ultimately pointless. Empty. You're right. Yeah. What What is it that human desire for, uh, for hobbies? Because I, I actually have like a deep desire to, to start a hobby but every time I start one, I'm like, this is stupid. <laughs> like, I, uh, why am I doing this? I know exactly what it is. So if you have no deep calling and purpose in your life that is all-encompassing, you will desperately seek for meaning in hobbies, whether it's a distraction, whether it's feeling like you've mastered something. Mm. So for most of my 30s, I was obsessed with a series of hobbies, whether it was becoming good at understanding wine and drinking wine, whether it was uh, audio gear. So I had audiophilia nervosa where I would like, you know, I had vacuum tubes and I was soldering transistors and new capacitors fresh from China that make the sound slightly less digit digitally sounding. And why? Because I had no, I had long since left the, the, the calling and purpose of what medicine had become, which is, was this mill. So to, to give myself the morphine of numbness, I would mm -hmm. find these hobbies. Now, that I'm doing something that just encompasses everything that I want to do in the world. I have no hobbies, dude. Like nothing. I have I have interests. Like I like to read and I like philosophy. I like consciousness. I like I still like drinking wine and eating nice food. I like to try to watch my wife cook neat things and see how I could never possibly do that. But I don't sit here going obsessing over a hobby. Right? It's interesting. So yeah. you, you think hobbies are mainly a distraction? It's been my experience from my N of one. In my own life. Now, what people would say, though, is like, um, th there'd be a lot of counter arguments to that. Some people would say, you know, I'm using my hobby as a, I'm getting good at it, and then I want to transition to it as my full-time thing, or... Well, that means that you're looking for a calling. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, mean, I guess what, it would all come back to that. I think so. That's probably why you don't care about hobbies. My, I have a desire for a hobby, though. Like, mm. like, because I feel like, um... I want to distract myself. Yeah. yeah Basically, yeah, nice probably. Distraction. Like, I want to be distracted, and mm -hmm. I want to, like, get into whatever it is. You know what I mean? Right. But then I'm like, I don't care about this thing right. or that thing. Whereas, you're right, when you find something that you care about, you'll move heaven and earth to make it happen. 100%. You know? And you start seeing the patterns everywhere. You go, oh, that's it. You know, you're always thinking about it. Yeah, when you're a hammer, everything looks like it, a nail. Oh, yeah. It's the same. Like, you see everything as, you see everything as health 3.0, and, like, how right. to overhaul the healthcare system. How to better communicate, how to yeah. engage people, how to I influence change. Those kind of things are what obsess me. And then that that actually, maybe that informs some of the hobbies that I have. Because like looking at philosophy, trying to understand like the nature of reality and consciousness and those kind of things, it directly ties into how, what's the meaning and purpose of what we're trying to influence. And now, would you, if you were being like a self-help guru type guy, would you deny people their hobbies? Would you say, you know what, you need to put down the hobbies and you need to focus on what you really want. You need to go out there and blah, blah, blah. No. Yeah. In fact, if anything, I would say find more hobbies because then you might be, if you're searching, you probably haven't found your path and calling fully. Right. So let's see if you can find you gotta it. Got to keep searching until you find it. That's yeah. right. For me, music was always like, 
a secret calling or at least an interest, and I was never that good at it. So when I found a way to be able to do it half-ass, like we do on the show, and still have people, like, dude, Steve Lukather from Toto tweets out the other day. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, our, our... our fucking Puprika parody of of me as the poo emoji, you know, I see the balls echo in the night. I always think of it as Puprika. More like <laughs> like paprika. paprika. Yeah, yeah, exactly, paprika. <laughs> he tweeted out, this may be my best, the best, my favorite cover of Africa. This is a guy who, you, you go back into the 80s and you tell my 80s self who would listen to Toto because he was a nerd and listened to prog rock, hey, this is what's gonna happen in 2019. I would have shit myself. Yeah. But you get to do that because you you pursue a hobby that really is a secret calling. So I wouldn't tell people not to do that. But hobby. what if everything you do, even what you're doing now, even your deep connected, uh, you know, meaningful work, you know, the, the way you, you find- You make it sound so cheap somehow, even <laughs> no, by no, making no. it sound correct. No, just, I mean, the, the way you find meaning throughout your day and, uh, you know, that the thing that's compelling you to, to go forward. What if all of that is just an attempt at finding love? You know what I mean? And, and you're just- it's, it's an ever higher attempt at finding love. Uh, it is, you know, I think you have to define love correctly though. So right. yes, you're right. Love is a deep connection to a purpose and other humans and conscious creatures. So yes, you're always trying to connect even more. The, the people I think who have the biggest trouble are the ones who feel disconnected from society. And some have even described depression clinical depression, not the ordinary misery that you've talked about, like right. deep clinical depression as a anomie, like this true separation of you, alienation of yourself from the connection of community and society. In fact, the act of you know, dying by suicide is mm -hmm. a, a kind of a saying, I don't belong here. Right. And, and that, that humans are hyper-social creatures, missing that love of connection, the love is what it is, a connection, leads to a kind of alienation that uh, is so deep that we can't live with it. This is kind of what we see in the mass shootings is like, not only do I want to kill myself oh, yeah, because man. I'm worthless, but I want to kill you because you've made me feel worthless. Ah. You being a proxy for whatever society writ large or my parents or whatever it is, you know? It's a very painful alienation and then it inflicts so much pain on other people. But I, th I, think, I think it's a, a thing that we haven't studied enough the yeah. disconnection from society. We talk about, you have a chemical imbalance right. and your serotonin isn't right. right. And if you take this pill, you'll feel better. It's like, now there's, a, there's a community imbalance. There's something wrong. And that's, that's why I think we're seeing with the kids now, social media triggering so much anxiety because rather than bringing us together, in many ways, social media creates, it amplifies our innate tribal impulses to wall ourselves off or hurt other people or you know feel like we're missing out. It's more alienation. Man, I'll tell you this, like <clears throat> as I uh, as I get more money, as I get more status and and power as I go through my career and you know, it's not like I'm like, you know, some powerful person or anything. But as you know, you just inch up that that ladder, you you feel this like desire to insulate yourself from other people. Mm. You know what I mean? Like but that you have to fight against that desire hard because uh that's dangerous for you. I mean, think about like the way that uh, if you can afford to live in a double gated community or something like that and you put yourself inside that double gate, you're, you're putting yourself in, in an isolated space where you're only in there with, you know, other other rich people. Ah, you know, this is a real interesting point that I'm thinking about myself because I find that when I'm not at work, you know, I, I'm a pretty extroverted guy. I get energized from social situations, but at the same time, I reach a limit where I can't, be around people. So mm -hmm. having a home in a gated community where no one can come bother me, I won't get solicitors at the door, nothing can happen, and it's just my family. Yeah. I found that in my uh, uh, you know 40s, that's great. It actually is all the community I need at home, and then I come out and have this broader community. So that balance is good for me. Whereas if I'd lived like that in my 20s and 30s when I'm trying to form those connections, it would have stunted me, it would have destroyed me. So you're too young to have that. Like, yeah. if you do that, you're going to isolate. And it, that's my take, anyways. My experience. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Remember when we had Vivek Murthy in here? He was talking about loneliness, social loneliness. You know, and uh, that was his big. He said it was a one of the underlying epidemics of our time. You know, was the epidemic of loneliness. And I think it's uh, prevalent, man. I, I'd forgotten about that. Actually, that's exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. Like here I am trying to make it more complex than it is. <laughs> it's, it's an epidemic of loneliness and he is 
made it his sort of second calling to kind of talk about that because he was a victim of loneliness as a kid. Now, do we, Nana, can you undo it by going further into digital space or do you have to go backwards? Like meaning when we get to VR, right? Mm. Uh, can, can you just be with your people in VR and that, and that's enough for your feeling of being socially connected? You know, you all meet up and you have your different avatars or whatever, like ready player one, mm. or do we have to go backwards and just sit in a park and stare at ducks with each other? Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't know the answer to this. I'll say this, the better the VR can hack our innate social wiring the less relevant reality will be right for that but right now it's such that it's well reality will always be relevant because it's the base layer so whatever's happening at the base layer will always affect the upper layers so vr is built on top of reality right, right? Yeah, yeah 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 so you so can't just you you reality won't be able, matters. yeah when when virtual reality becomes becomes a thing you won't be able to just you know let yourself be a, a basically a vat in a jar and just stay in virtual reality all day mm, long. Mm. Although I'm sure that people will start selling services like that or start doing that to themselves. Mm. You're, you're going to have to deal with reality on the base layer always, right? You won't be able to ever escape this bedrock. No, I mean, I think that's true unless the VR gets so advanced that you get, you're even disconnected. In other words, it has no more relation in that it's an independent self generating entity. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny. So Andy just wrote in, uh, how about the um, uh, hikikomori phenomenon in Japan? Dudes locking themselves up in their rooms, sealed off from society, literally don't leave their rooms. Fascinating from a cultural, sociological, psych perspective. I've heard about this thing. Well, totally, because the the pressures are so high yeah. uh, in, in their society that if you don't perform or, or if you're not the top of the, the male hierarchy, and, you know, males do organize themselves into, into dominance hierarchies. Um, and this has been, you know, evolutionary advantageous to males since the dawn of time, because, you know, whoever was the most competent male would rise up to the top of the hierarchy. And obviously that male was going to get more women and status, mm. uh, than you were, but you were going to stay alive because he would lead you through the war or he would lead you to food or whatever it was. Right. Mm. So in Japan, you're seeing that play out where you have, a, they have really high expectations for everybody. And only a certain percentage of people are able to compete in the modern world because the modern world is so complex. So the people that are competing are, you know, out competing everybody. And then you have a bunch of people at the bottom that you're gonna have to figure out what to do with. And some of those people, they just are like, I'm gonna completely check out from life. There's a, a, a an American version of it called MGTOW. And that means men going their own way. <laughs> and it's basically just these, these men who are like kind of adult incels, or, or maybe they're not necessarily incels but they've just decided you know the hell with women i'm not mm. gonna i'm not gonna play their game i'm not gonna do anything for status or <laughs> anything in society i'm going to uh, just sit alone in my room and and drum all day long or i'm gonna you know go on the internet and, and masturbate and just work my job and get drunk and just whatever it is that i want to do because i don't owe anybody anything it sounds like a dream life to me <laughs> <laughs> I want to do this MG. I'm, I'm, I'm Z-Dog going my own way. But you know, so Stephanie Lapid, uh, who y'all recognize from a lot of videos, uh, working that IV poll, she just wrote in and said, I think we have to go backwards. So I experimented with this, Stephanie, where I do Screen Free Sunday, right? right? And uh, it's now the fourth week of this. And I got to say, like the kids look forward to it. I look forward to it. It is a reset of your social system in your mind like it, you're just like oh there's no there's none of this stuff it's just us we may watch a movie together like but then we'll sit together and we'll comment on it together we're not staring at our own screens it really is it, it, it our wiring is ideally for that social media hasn't yet hacked it perfectly that's right. why it hurts so much i think one day they may and, and whether we should be scared of that or embrace it i don't know you know, it's interesting. I, I started doing just very simple things to get more in touch with uh, reality and be more present in the moment. And one of them was I found that I was always walking around with um, sunglasses and headphones in. Just uh -uh. always. That's true. And so that's isolating, you know, my audio and visual channels from what's actually going on around me. So now when I like walk the dog or I go out to get lunch or whatever, normally I would just be like, you know, this is dead, dead time, and I'm going to fill it with a podcast. Or I'm going to fill it with an audio book, and mm. you know, I, I, my sunglasses are prescription, so I can get over it by saying that. I'm like, oh, I need them to see. I have regular glasses I can wear. You know, so I stopped doing it, and I noticed that I'm much more connected to the world around mm. me. Like, I will see an old lady and stop and say hi, or you know, I'll stop and talk to somebody about the dogs or whatever it is, mm. right? And it, it gives me a better feeling 
than that endless podcast that I'm that I'm probably never going to remember anyway. Like, which is just ultimately a distraction. That 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 it's a powerful realization when we start to realize that that right. being present is actually a kind of entertainment in itself, that you're, you're really deeply connected to the present moment. First of all, you don't suffer because you're not resisting the present moment. Right. Yeah, so you're not like, oh, like last night, I remember I woke up in the middle of the night, my, my wife made this amazing freaking pork shoulder thing yeah. with like apples and apple cider and this braised thing. I ate way too much of it. it sounds good. Yeah, it was delicious. <laughs> I woke up in the middle of the night and I was like, oh, I feel not well. And I just got up and I was like, I feel nauseous, I don't feel good. And so I just sat in the, in, uh, out in the living room because I didn't want to wake my wife up you know, with all my tossing and turning and man fluing. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, this is miserable. And then I remember thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, what the hell do I meditate for every day? To be present in the, and accept the present moment and actually watch feelings, thoughts, and, and sensations as they arise. So I did that, I was like, oh, look at that, that's a, what nausea feels like. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not bad in itself, it's a kind of sensation. And within five minutes of doing that, the sensations actually dissipate because everything comes and goes. It's all in permanent, right? Yeah, I do this with pain when I have pain. Right. I, I focus on it and it becomes warm or hot That's or right. a vibration or whatever, and then I can uh, you know, tolerate it a right. lot better. But if you put emotional valence on it, yeah. this is suffering. It's yes. never going to get better. I'm just, I'm injured. I, I, I'm falling apart. Uh, what am I going to do? Yeah. Then it becomes just abject misery. Well, we've been going through this with, uh, with a newborn, you know, ah. because when you're, I mean, it feels like it's never going to end, right? So you, here's the secret: it never does. Yeah, you can get, you <laughs> just can get different form. Well, you can get really stuck in that moment though. Of like, this is going to be like this forever. And uh, my daughter has a little bit of an acid reflux problem, you know, mm. which is like kind of on the colic spectrum. It's it's nothing, but my daughter had that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but you know, it's not nothing when you're dealing with it. No, because it's it's brutal when you're dealing yeah. with it. Now, six months from now, I'm gonna be like, ah, yeah, it's a little colic thing. Barely remember it. Right now, it like consumes our mm. our day to day. You know, I remember it well, man. Yeah, and and yet now I am. I'm like, oh, it wasn't a big deal, but it, wasn't it was a, big a deal. huge deal, man. It yeah. was dominating every second of your waking but, life. But here's the thing: if you, if you go through your entire life knowing that in the future that you can look back on this and and it'll be a nothing occurrence to you, then you're gonna skip through your whole life on fast forward. And that gets me to something I read this morning. I get this email from Dig because Dig is apparently still a thing. I can't believe that's still around. It's still a thing, not without Kevin Rose and. Um, it's great because it actually pulls the best like memetic stories from the internet and mm -hmm. feeds them to you. So I, I, I have their letter and it was, um, it's a 10 year or something anniversary, maybe longer of the miracle in the Hudson where Sully, yeah. Had, yeah and I've met Sully, I spoke after him. Mm -hmm. He's like the real deal, right? Well, apparently the passengers were all interviewed about like what, well, so what's this been like now 10 years, whatever it was. And they said, relating to what you just said, they said, what we realize, one of them in particular was saying, what, what I realize is it's those little mundane things in your life that you realize when you're about to die that you miss, that are the, the, were the, were the most meaningful things. You know, the stupid thing that your kid drops the bowl of cereal on the floor or whatever it is. It's that that gives the depth and color and meaning to your life, these little mundane things. Why? Because they happen in the present moment. And if you don't resist them, they're life. And he said, those were the things that I was, I knew I was gonna miss and now I pay attention to yeah. because I've given the second chance. I had a friend who lost, uh, him and his wife lost a child in utero Ugh. at like 30 some odd weeks, oh. right? Like 34 weeks. Uh, so this is a full, this is a full, full -term, term baby, yeah. yeah. And what he had written on Facebook was that um, he was gonna miss, what he was gonna miss most is this child like, you know, waking him up in the middle of the night and annoying him, mm. you know? And that he would never get a chance to do that with this child. You know, you know, uh, that's going to be a show that we do, right? Mm -hmm. uh, inner uterine, right? Because we were talking about this. There's loss. not, a, there's not a lot of support not for a lot of support. women who lose a child, uh, like you know, and, and their husbands, right? So actually, I'm not going to tell you. Oh, it's brutal, dude. So, so there's a famous person that I know personally, a famous physician, who told me a story he's never told publicly about how he and his wife lost a child at you know X number of weeks. And everyone, all his, you know, friends and colleagues and buddies and everybody was like, oh, well, you know, you, you, you're young, you'll do it again, no big deal. And ultimately he had children and so on. But what he told me was like, it was so devastating for both of them 
that they and there was no one they could turn to, no support. Right. There's this feeling that oh, this, these things happen a quarter of you know first trimester pregnancies, you know, spontaneously abort and so on. But it, it didn't change the fact that they lost a child, mm -hmm. and the fact that we don't, as a society, really treat that the same as as losing a a, a born child is is not is not good. So so what I'd like to do is do a show like an AMA style show where we talk about that. Maybe we get a guest because I think it's important. It'd be something that we could rally around and really help a lot of people. You, the one, on one point I'll put on that uh, when I talk to the Press Ganey people. Uh, it was their marketing team at whatever conference in Cleveland I was at, a Cleveland Empathy Summit, whatever it was. Uh, the lady was telling me, she's like, look, I know you guys hate us. I know you don't, you know, you think it's all about dilaudid and turkey sandwiches. But the way I see it is what it's about is how do you talk in the hospital to a mother who's lost a child in utero and she's mm -hmm. there for, you know, the procedure? How do you go about interacting with her? How do you make her feel like she's heard and witnessed and that this loss is, is, is understood and witnessed. And I said, you know, that is the patient experience that we should never discount. It's easy to go, ah, oh, it's turkey sandwiches and all that. And I thought, well, you know, that makes me almost want to look further into Prescani. And then I realized mostly it's about turkey sandwiches. <laughs> but so it's that, you know, it's that. And, that we want, and that's what we want to do on the show too, is kind of like raise awareness about these kind of things that people are afraid to talk about that cause suffering if the goal is alleviate suffering. Yeah, I've always been a, sort of a blunt person, mm. you know, and I think this, is, this comes from uh, being raised by my mother who's, who's mentally ill because my mother would just say whatever to anybody at any given time. And to me, I feel the same way. Like, let's just say the truth. Like, mm. let's just say it like it is, right? But people um, always bristle at those mm. when, I, when I do it to them. They act like it's a, it's a confrontation for me to just speak the truth out loud. You know. you know, it's very true because our egos are highly defended and we're used to a certain societal norm. It's actually different on the West Coast and the East Coast. The East Coast people are a little more blunt. The West Coast people like to lubricate the stuff with, you know, lies basically. Yeah. But your thing is, which again, if you didn't do it, I don't think we'd be working together, is you'll just say, that's stupid, don't do that. Or I really have this idea and you will not say no to this because this is going to work. Like just absolutely being blunt. Because again, if you're surrounded by people who are lying to you, um, you're never gonna grow, you're never gonna challenge yourself. Right. And then your own ego is gonna get more fortified against the truth. Because uh, self, self deception is one of our strongest attributes as humans, we're very good at it. We evolved to do it so that we could deceive others and cheat a little bit in tribal situations, we deceive ourselves so that we keep our game face. If we believe our own lies, then I can look at you right in the eye and tell you, you will know I'm the dopest singer on the oh, planet. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tom Heineberg. You ever changed a memory because you lied? Like, oh, 100%. All the time, right? 100%. Like, you knew the memory was one thing. Yeah. You lied about the memory. And now it's something And else. now the memory is the lie. Mm. But you can't remember the original. Uh, so you've altered your own reality while trying to alter somebody yeah, else's. Yeah, you know, the scary part of that is in meditation or hypnosis or psychotherapy, those memories, the original memory comes back out and you see them side by side. And then you either, either two things happen. You either realize what you did and why you did it and you forgive yourself or more self-blame. You know, like, man, I'm yeah. a terrible person. Like, how could I do that? Or you go back to burying it. And yeah, you, you act bear, like yeah, it, yeah, you that, never, that's the more common thing. Yeah, yeah that's the more common thing. Yeah. I've started doing this thing now when I meditate. We should wrap it up soon because we're at uh, 40, 42 minutes. But I do this thing when I meditate now where the, the you know, unconscious material comes up and I make a note. I'm like, oh, damn. But I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna say something right now. I'm gonna say something right now. So I meant to, I was trying to figure out how to address this. So when I was in medical school, mm -hmm. uh, I used to tutor kids because uh, I loved to teach and it was like my identity at the time. So I'm at UCSF and I'm teaching kids how to get into UCSF or whatever it is. So I had this family, uh, it's Asian kids in San Francisco and I won't use their names, but there were three of them. There was the son, the youngest, the middle girl and the oldest girl. The oldest girl was in college and was trying to get into medical school. The youngest girl, the middle girl was in high school trying to get into college and the youngest kid was like in like, you know, lower high school trying to get, just do well. So their mother was a total tiger mom. Like she wanted a UCSF student uh, to teach their kids because they were gonna go to medical school and this is what they were gonna do. Uh, 
And I was very conflicted about that tiger mom component because I was like, you know, this isn't for everybody. And honestly, these kids are bright kids and they're good people, but they're not, they're not gonna make it in medical school. I can tell you that maybe one of them, but the other two not. So why are you hurting them, making them do this? They probably don't wanna do this. So subtly I would kind of, the back of my mind, I, was, I would be teaching them and I'd be thinking, I don't know what I'm doing this for. So fast forward, midway through medical school, I get in this car accident. So I'm in uh, San Francisco, a guy runs a red light, I'm going through the green light, he's high on coke, hits me, kills a pedestrian in the process and injures another one. And I watch all this happen, I'm seeing bodies flying across the hood. So I, and I've told the story before about you know, how the press then had a picture of me saying I was the guy who ran the red light and all this crazy stuff. So I had, oh, yeah, I yeah. had trauma. Yeah. I was damaged, right? I had total PTSD, I'm like second year medical student. So the family, the mother is calling, leaving vet messages on my voicemail. I had an actual answering machine because it was the 90s saying, You're, why aren't you answering the phone? These kids need their tutoring, what's going on? And I didn't have, I didn't have it in me to just tell her I'm going through some shit. Yeah. Like uh, it's really hard for me to, to do something that I feel is not meaningful for these poor kids who you're torturing. Mm -hmm. And so what did I do? I just ghosted. I didn't answer the phone. And the, the, the messages got more and more frantic. And, uh, you know, because I think applications were coming up or something. And I'm like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And, you know, then the, one of the daughters leaves a message and she was near tears. And I just continued to ghost it. And they disappeared. Yeah. I must have buried it or something. And then in meditation the other day, it all came, I remembered this thing and I'm like, oh my God, like what was I doing to these poor kids <laughs> and their mom who had nothing to do with my trauma, right? And I never resolved it. I never like found them. I don't have, maybe they're doctors now, maybe they're from, I don't know. But somehow I was dragging that guilt and shame of doing that to them because I was the teacher, right? And I just abandoned them, dragging it unconsciously through life. and. I resolved then in meditation, just made a note. Okay, I can't dwell on this because it's gonna mess up my meditation, but <laughs> I need to say something to somebody. So I know if they're listening now, all right, I'm really sorry. Like I, it was me, all right? It wasn't you, I hope you did okay. I know you did, you found your path, but like, I feel terrible about it. I'm really sorry, message me and we'll talk and I'll make it up to you. Probably by selling you drugs, because that's what I do. So yeah, what you said is, uh, I think the thing that people have the hardest time with, which is just being honest about when you're feeling vulnerable, right? <laughs> it's so hard. It's so hard. Even with my wife, it's so hard. It's like, hey, why did you do that thing? Ah, because I'm the fucking guy who does those things. That's why, right? When in reality, it's like, man, because I don't feel very good. Um, yeah. And I'm just keeping it all together. Yeah, you know, I'm barely holding it together. Yeah, it with you know what with wives or with spouses, it's that's where it really it gets even harder. Yeah. It's, it's almost a, a impossible because you could meet a stranger. Like I was in an Uber with a, a guy just recently, and he he just started talking to me. He was like, "Hey, man, yeah." So the thing is, um, my wife she left me for this guy uh, at the at the Seagull Suites, and he was doing heroin, and now I got the kid, and I don't know what to do. And I was like, "It sounds like you're on drugs too." He's like, "I yeah, I am," and I was like, "Yeah, man, you need to get your kid into therapy." And I was I was just telling him, I was like, "You you're gonna fuck that kid up, dude. Yeah, like, for real. And yeah. you need to stop doing whatever the fuck you're doing because he was yeah. driving erratically and stuff. Oh. And he was like, "You know what, like." I'm so glad I opened up to you, bro. Like, I, you know, and I was like, he's not going to take my advice, but, but we had a nice moment where we were honest with each other. You know, you know and those are rare, dude. Yeah. Like, cause again, you, the vulnerability component of it, especially I think with men, but also with women, it's just true of everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We can't really stereotype this. I mean, he was so high. I'll never remember. <laughs> I was really scared for my life, you know? <laughs> but be, being vulnerable with a spouse is, a, is especially important and especially hard to do. Yeah. yeah, just just being honest. Just is being hard. honest. Just, just being, being honest, honest is hard. Yeah. You know what helps? MDMA. <laughs> That's another show. Uh, but yeah, so you know. Anyway, so I this is a good chat, Tom Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna send you the bill. Uh, yeah, the, the, ther take, the therapy bill. <laughs> I'll take that therapy bill. Um, I'll take the rapist for three hundred, Jack. Uh, it's therapist. <laughs> <laughs> um. 
Yeah. And now we have to end with humor because we're uncomfortable. That's right. We're both squirming <laughs> in our stuff. So we're going to say, yeah, all the dicks and stuff. <laughs> humor is an, is an amazing coping mechanism. It is. It's, I've used it all my life for better or for worse. Oh, totally. And I still have to end everything with a joke. Mm -hmm. I ended my TED med with a freaking stupid joke. I mean, it's like, just stop. Just be serious for once, you dick. Why you got to always like sabotage everything? It's, it's vulnerability. Man. It is. It's, you can't, it's hard to stand in that fucking... You can't hold that space for too long. Yeah. Yeah, because it's just... <laughs> was as, as guys, too. It's like, we're, I mean, we're... Yeah, right, right. It's like trying to speak French when you, <laughs> you have no idea. You know, I think, I, think, I think women, it's like a, a superpower, uh, you know, yeah, like, they're, they're better. They can do it. They're better. Yeah. And they expect us to do it. And then when we don't step up, they're like, God mm -hmm. damn it. Yeah. Oh, well. So here's the call to action, ZPAC. Become a supporter of the show. Helps us. And you're going to get CECME. The quick news on that. Apparently anyone who can get AMA, PRA category one or ANCC certified credits or ACC, ACCME certified credits, doesn't matter what you're specialty is what you do if those things are accepted by your organization your licensing board you can get credit for watching cmes we're planning when we come back from the one seek shoot this weekend we're going to start doing these cmes and we might talk about things like i don't know philosophy like stuff that you don't normally learn in cme right where yeah. that'll actually help you take care of patients better, yeah. be a better human being yeah. be less of a dick be more more vulnerable those kind of things yeah um yeah all right i don't know we done I think we did this. We did it. Get out and stay out. Bye, Bitcoin, everybody. <laughs> hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.